on this computer. Here we go. Now we're rolling. All right. I want to give everyone a welcome. Like I said before, for those of you that are just now joining us, this might be as close as I can get to ever having my own talk show. Love the setup. And uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe uh, there's a future in my, uh, in the in talk show um, hosting. Clearly not. Here we go. Warm welcome to everyone. Glad those of you that have signed on are, are here. And for those of you who had to struggle to sign on, hopefully it gets a little easier every time. And if I can help make it easier for you in any way, please let me know. And I'm more than glad to walk you through whatever technical issues you might be having after the meeting or any time during the week. I'll be glad to work through those issues with you. A few notes before we begin. Uh, some of you may have read this in my email from yesterday, but for those of you that haven't right now, I have the controls and I've muted everyone for the moment. So you can't talk back and forth with one another right now. This means that only I can talk right now. And periodically what I'll do is I'll try and open up the virtual floor to see if there are any questions. Uh, or if you do have questions, you can use the chat feature at any time and submit the question. Or you can wait until I ask if there are any questions, unmute yourself and then ask away. We'll see how that works. And alternatively, you can also send me text messages by way of, uh, or yeah, text or questions by way of text message. Uh, let me see if there's any on here right now. I don't think there are. Oh, all right, cool. Um, so you can do that. So let's begin and we'll try and stumble our way through this and see how it goes. All right. And uh, mute. I guess people can, as they join on, they can, uh, they can still, uh, be heard. Okay, here we go. What are we going to talk about today? Uh, I've decided, at least for the time being, to stick with our Old Testament series, and I actually had a couple of you comment that that was your preference, so I'm glad to do that. And I wanted to turn uh, something around quickly so that we could get started this week, so that was another reason I decided let's just stick with this series, uh, sticking with the current uh, theme of, the, of men and women of the Old Testament. It just so happens that right now there is a figure in the Old Testament that would be appropriate to do a mini-study on. In fact, our pastor decided to do a study midweek, uh, did a midweek devotion on this figure just a few days ago. That's a, a hint of where we're going with this. And uh, in our home during this uncertain season, um, I've been hearing a lot of, and it may be the same thing in your home, I've been hearing a lot of, that's not fair right now. And it's not just from the kids, we hear it from the adults too. And there's this certain sense whereby perhaps all of us in one way or another have had the very thought uh, whether we're talking about ourselves or, or saying it on behalf of someone else, that it's not fair. Whether it's someone who's sick or someone who's lost work and, and income, uh, whether we can't do the things we're accustomed to doing, there's just this prevalence of, of saying to one another and to ourselves, it's just not fair. In fact, uh, it was a week before last when everyone was still trying to decide uh, what the proper response to the virus would be, uh, that, we, uh, that was our week of spring break. And we had already decided that we were going to do a staycation this year. However, we also decided that we were going to, 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 to check in to the Opryland Hotel here in town for a period uh, during our staycation and, uh, and also go to the water park that's been now built in the hotel. Well, as the days drew nearer, Tracy and I kept debating back and forth whether or not it would still be okay to do this. We even thought at one point that we would have the whole park to ourselves, but we also thought, what if we didn't have the whole park to ourselves? What if it was jam-packed full of people who decided to throw caution uh, to the wind? So we decided to cancel our plans and hunker down right here in our home, uh, just like many of you or most of you. And, uh, and I guess, yes, we had some disappointed kids in our hands. And of course, with that, we heard the mantra of all humanity, that's not fair. We were disappointed along with them. 
but uh, whenever we hear ourselves mutter, it's not fair, or whenever we hear someone else say that, it's not fair, uh, we, we say this, when we say this, we're, we're making a comparison. In fact, it's impossible, impossible to make a statement of fairness without comparison. It's not fair compared to what? By what or whose standard? So at least for me, whenever I start telling myself uh, I'm getting an unfair share, that's about the time I consider the curious case of Job. It's like getting a, a biblical gut check. There's, there's something altogether difficult about the book of Job, isn't there? Uh, I've, uh, even the basic premise of the book just doesn't feel right. If you're not familiar with it, it's almost as if Satan challenges God's fairness or, or something. And it puzzles us a little bit that, first of all, that God would have any sort of conversation with Satan in the first place. And second of all, that God would take up Satan on his challenge to, to stretch the faith of Job. Well, on the surface, if you only knew the main bullet points of the account of Job, you might get, you might get upset with it all. Because let me tell you, the ending of, of the account of Job may, may not make you feel any better because it just doesn't seem fair of God. You, if you only gather the, the bullet points of this account, you'll ask yourself, why, why would God allow any of this, right? Now, not unlike many of us have probably thought over the last several weeks too, I'm sure, but, but further, that question of why would God allow any of this will haunt you if you only look at this account as it exists in the Old Testament. If you only look at the book of Job and nothing else, you'll be left with that question of, of God, why, why would you allow all that? If you, if you only look at the book of Job in the context of the Old Testament, you'll go nuts because it almost just doesn't make sense that why would God allow this? Like, like we've done throughout the entire series, you, you not only have to consider what's being said in the book of Job, but you also have to consider what's being said in the book of Job in the light of the gospel, in the light of the New Testament. Everything that went on in the Old Testament, as we've said many times in this class, everything that went on in the Old Testament is a pointer or a foreshadowing of sorts of, of what Christ would do in the New Testament. So when we read the book of Job, you can't just say, well, well, that was a good story. What, what's the lesson here? You have to read the book of Job and say, what does the book of Job teach me about Christ? That's very important. When you read the book of Job, you have to say, what does the book of Job teach me about Christ? And that's the key to having a better understanding of what in the world is going on in the book of Job. So what does it teach us about Christ? Uh, I hope that makes some sense, and keep this idea in mind as we dive into the book of Job. So open your Bibles or go grab one if you don't have one already in case our technology fails us. I'm going to try and put the scriptures up here on the, on the screen, and we'll start in the first chapter of, of Job, and we're just going to just do a 40,000-foot overview of the book here. Uh, Job is in the Old Testament right before the book of Psalms, so if you can't find the book of Psalms, uh, excuse me, so if you can't find the book of, of Job, find the book of Psalms. Uh, you, it's kind of almost in the middle. And then back up one book to the book of Job, chapter one, and that's what you'll need to know going in uh, to this, uh, this study. And first of all, the other thing you need to know going into the study is Job was very, very, very wealthy, all right? And he was blameless and upright, it says. Now, he wasn't sinless. It says he was blameless and upright. That doesn't mean he was sinless. But he was what we would say of, of someone who was, uh, was godly, was a godly person, someone who fears and turns from evil. If we were to make a scale, 
Job would probably be in that, if I could say this, in the 99th percentile on both that, that godly uh, and person who, who, uh, who, who seeks justice uh, scale, okay? And so the, the beginning of the, of the book of Job, uh, let's start in verse 6, and it starts like this. Job chapter 1, verse 6, starts like this. Let's see if I can share the screen here now. Here we go. Job 6, or Job 1, Verse 6 goes like this. Let me get this out of the way here. Now, moving this. There was a day when the Lord, excuse me, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? Have you, uh, you have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have been increased in, uh, and have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Okay, so Satan comes, after, uh, uh, comes to God after walking to and fro on the earth, it says, right? Let me come out of this screen here. After coming out of uh, to and, and fro on the earth and, and looking over uh, his domain, if you will, and uh, it's as if he reports to God saying, you know what? Uh, I've been roaming the earth and all is going according to plan. I've got everything and everyone right where I want them. I've got them all wrapped around my little pinky. Everyone, all of them. They're all evil and corrupt. There's no one who's righteous. But God says to him, well, have you considered my, my servant Job? And uh, you can almost hear in, a, in, a, in Satan in a sarcastic tone, yeah, Job, sure, you've given him anything anyone could ever ask for. And you've, you've built this mountain of protection around him. You've given him his health, his family, and his riches untold. Of course, Job loves you. Who wouldn't? This is why Satan tells him, does, God, uh, does Job fear God uh, for no reason? In other words, Satan is, is telling the Lord, the only reason he loves you is not because of you, but because of what he gets from you. Take away those things and he'll curse you to your face. Let me at him, is what Satan says. And so this is the basis of our, of our conflict. And on the surface, it may seem like that Job is just a pawn in all of this. And, and this is something that might bother us a bit. Poor Job, right? He didn't ask for any of this. Nevertheless, Satan is giving him permission, uh, or, or Satan is given permission to have at Job. Everything he has, his family, his possessions, his health, everything, save his actual life. He can't kill him, but anything else goes. Now let's look at verse uh, 13 and how it begins. Verse 13 goes like this. Now, there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their uh, oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then it goes on to tell us that he loses his cattle. And then after his cattle, he's informed that his sons and daughters were killed in a terrible accident. 
So in a matter of moments, Job loses most everything that would have been considered valuable to him. Now, now before we continue, we already have uh, learned something about God and human wickedness. A few weeks back, we looked at, uh, at the account of Job, or excuse me, at the account of Joseph, how his, how his brothers went and, and beat him up and, and threw him in a well and, and sold him off to a band of travelers, pure evil. And at the conclusion of that account, after, after the torture that Joseph lived through, uh, he became the prince of Egypt, and years later, he was finally reunited with those brothers who basically left him for dead. And, and what was it that Joseph said to his brothers who were fearing the worst from him, who probably thought, well, now he's going to get us back for all those awful things we did to him. What did Joseph say? He said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So what we might want to ask of that account in this one, too, is, is who is responsible? We have the, the, the death of Job's servants. Job's children and the destruction of his property? Is it the fault of the invaders who plundered his stuff? Is it Satan's fault or is it God's? And really the only way to answer that question is by saying, yes, all of the above. This is something that theologians call concurrence. There are wills, there are the wills of multiple parties at play. It's not that Satan had to coerce anyone under, under, to, to plunder Job's property. They were plunderers from the beginning. The plunderers were doing what plunderers do. Once the hedge of protection was removed from Job and, 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 uh, and they were happy to, to go in and do it at that point. No coercion necessary. They were happy to assist Satan. But then we have to ask ourselves, why does God allow Job to suffer? He could have stopped all of this at any point, right? He didn't have to offer up Job in the first place. He could have just told Satan to go away. I owe you nothing. You know, he could have done that. So. Why did he allow it? Do you remember the account uh, in the New Testament um, of, the, uh, of the man born blind? It's in John chapter 9. The, the disciples asked Jesus, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his sin or was it because of his parents' sin? And do you remember what Jesus' answer was? He said, neither, but that the works of God might be displayed in, in him. In other words, this man was born blind so that God might be glorified. And then Jesus healed the, the blind man and gave him sight. And that's hard for us to grasp, but this is a common theme throughout scripture. Could it be that, that this is what's going on here with Job? That Job suffers, okay? Job suffers that God might be glorified, okay? I think that's a good point to stop and see if there are questions. Let me first check the, uh, the, the, uh, the chat thing here. Oh, Job chapter and verse, someone says, I hope I got that. We were, we were just in Job chapter one. We're going to hop around a little bit and I'll, uh, I'll try and um, uh, keep you uh, informed that way too. Uh, and let me unmute everyone just for a moment to see if there are any other questions. If I can figure out how to do that here. Manage participants. Well, where's unmute all. Okay. Everyone is unmuted at this point. So, Let's see if there are any questions. Does anyone have any questions before I continue? One at all. Any text questions? No. All right. Well, here we go. 916. We're still rolling on time. Okay. If there are no questions, I'm going to continue. Okay. Everyone doing okay? Give me a thumbs up if you are. Everyone doing okay? All right. Thumbs up. I see it. Thank you. I see that hand. Way to go. And I see the virtual thumbs up too. All right. I'm going to go back and, and for a moment, okay? We'll, we'll, uh, we'll check in with you guys in a little bit. All right, here we go. Okay, so now Job's suffering mounts at this point. 
Uh, he loses everything, including his health. His skin is ravaged with boils as he sits on, on top of a literal dung heap, scraping his skin with, broken, uh, with a broken clay pot for relief. Uh, he's in total misery, okay? So if we ever think we suffered, let's once again have a gut check here with Job. So then Job's friends comes to him and, and they give him their best advice. In a nutshell, uh, what, what, this is what Job's friends end up telling him. They, they, they tell him, Job, this is unreal. We, we've never seen anything like this before. And, uh, and no one suffers like this unless, unless they've done something to really upset God, Job. So, so Job, your best course of action might be here to confess your sins and repent before God and uh, before things go from, from bad to worse. And basically, Job replies back to them saying, you know, I'd love to do that, but I, I don't know what to confess. I don't, I don't know what it is that, that I've done. And so then his friends try telling him, see, you're, you're so sinful that you're not even aware of your own sin. There must be something that you're not saying because there's, there's no explanation for this. Clearly, God is going out of his way to get you. Have you ever felt like that? That God is going out of his way to get you? Job probably could, could be the one to, to say that, oh, yeah, I, I feel that way. This is the heart of the counsel of Job's friends, okay? This is basically what they're telling him. Clearly, you've done something wrong. You best repent. So then before long, another acquaintance comes along, and his name is Elihu. He comes along, and, and he actually rebukes Job's three friends, which seems like, well, this is good news. Finally, someone of reason comes along. And, and they've been telling him all along that, that God is doing this because of Job's sins, and he rebukes them for saying that. But then almost in the same breath, Elihu then, then continues to rebuke Job, so, so he's not, not any help either. Now, at this point, this is when Job's wife gets in on the act. And though she's not accusatory of Job, and like Scott mentioned in his devotional earlier this week, she often gets a bad rap. But, but her solution is, look, I don't, I don't know if you've sinned or not, Job, uh, but I can't stand to see you like this. So I think the best course of action here is for you to just curse God and die. Be done with it. Put yourself out of this misery. I can't stand to see you in this misery. And though she, she means well, that's a painful thing to hear. Why? Because if you'll recall, right from the start of this account, that was Satan's objective. God, if you take away this hedge of protection that you've surrounded Job with, guess what? He'll curse you to your face. And that's essentially what the very suggestion of Job's wife is. And, it, and it's heartbreaking when you, when you uh, uh, get, a, get a handle on that. And, and this is sometimes the way that, that life works out sometimes. Uh, sometimes it's the people who are closest to you that end up being the voice of doubt. They might be trying to convince you to, to do one thing, to do, uh, to, or to convince you from doing the right thing because they don't want you to face the consequences of, of whatever it is you're trying to do. And this is what Job's wife was trying to do. Look, Job, I hate this for you. You know, I can't stand to see you like this. I love you, but I'd rather you die than continue to suffer like this. Just curse God and die. It's not that she's doing it out of some kind of ill will or self-righteousness, which I guess is why it's sometimes she gets a bad rap, but nevertheless, she's giving Job a, a bag of false goods here. Just curse, Job, just curse God and die, Job. And so what, is, what, is, uh, what does Job say? He has two replies to all of this, uh, two mindsets, and it's perfectly summarized in, in one verse. Job 13, 15 says this. Let's see if we can't bring this back up. This is Job 13, 15, and it says... Though he slay me, I will hope in him. That's, that's beautiful. No matter what you dish out to me here, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to believe in you. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. But that's only the first half of the verse. The second half of the verse says this. 
yet I will argue my ways to his face. This, this is what has characterized Job's response to his friends and his wife. Look, I haven't done anything wrong. I have nothing to confess here. I'm blameless. And at the same time, he also appeals to God. God, what have I done? Have I, not, have I not done everything you've ever asked me to do? Have I not cared for you? If I'm a liar, let me be judged. If I've looked at another woman, then judge me. If I've seen anyone, if I've seen anyone or anything in want and not done something about it, then let me be damned. But, but God, I haven't done these things. And he says this in his final plea in chapter 31. He tells God, here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me, he says. He asked God for an answer me. Answer me, oh God. You owe, you owe me an answer. Just answer me. And if I could say this as, as delicately as possible, this is sort of the mindset that we approach God with as we come to this book. We, we, feel, we feel for Job, don't we? Yeah, give him an answer, God. It's the least you can do, isn't it? Don't you owe him at least an apology or for something? He doesn't deserve this, does he? No one deserves to suffer like this. God, answer him. Give him an answer. Now, I know I've shared this with you all before, uh, so if you'll indulge me as I share it again, and that is the, the notion that, that my kids have as to what in the world belongs to them. And the short of it is, as, as long as they're living rent-free under my roof, they don't own a thing, okay? Even if, even if they bought it with their own money, I have the prerogative to take that away from there, that thing away from theirs if I wanted it. it it's, it's, it's for their own good, right? Keep it up or I'm going to take away your phone. They'll tell me, but I paid for this phone. It's my phone, they'll tell me. And that's when I remind them, whose, whose phone is it? There's a scene, I don't know if you've seen the movie. This is a, a good movie to see during your quarantine. If you haven't, it's called Remember the Titans. And there's the, the head coach where the, the football uh, uh, coach is played by uh, Denzel Washington. And uh, he's saying this to one of his smart aleck players who's, who's mouthing off to him. He says, who is your daddy? He's basically saying, while you're on my team, you do what I tell you to do. So right here, right now in this football field, who is your daddy? And that's what I tell my kids. I'm their actual daddy, though. Uh, when they're on the football field or not, who's your daddy, right? So, so even when they tell me, hey, that's mine, you can't take that from me. I, I, I have to remind them who's in charge here. So I tell them, listen, let me remind you, this doesn't belong to you. It belongs to me. I know you think it belongs to you but it really belongs to me. You know, look around you. Look, you see everything around you, this house, the furniture, everything in it, everything in your room, the clothes you have on your body, everything that brings you joy in this house, all that stuff, it's mine, okay? I often, I often uh, uh, let you use much of this stuff in this house because I'm a nice dad, but if I wanted to, I could take it all away from you. And with that, I know I should write a parenting book, but, uh, and I know I can be more tactful, I'm sure, but sometimes my kids need a reminder that they're not the ones in charge. I don't answer to them. They're, they're not the ones who, who tell their mom and dad what to do. We call the shots, not them. And really, ultimately though, ultimately, none of it belongs to me either. That's the secret to all of it, okay? I'm only entrusted with it. God could take it all away in an instant by his own prerogative. So when Job demands an answer from God, God gives it to him and he gives him a reminder that it's not Job who's calling the shots. And if you think I'm tough on my kids, listen to this, chapter 38 of Job, verse one. Chapter 38 of Job, verse one, it says this. Hang tight. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this? 
that darkens counsel by words without knowledge. Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of glory shouted for joy? Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked into the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of, of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Speak up, Job, is what he's saying. So all along, Job has been asking, why, why, why? And, and basically, God answers, who is this that darkens the counsel with ignorance, Job? If, 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 if you know what you're talking about, right? He continues this verbal beating for two chapters. 73 verses are then devoted to this tongue lashing. And then Job finally gets a word, and he says this in chapter 40, verses 4 to 5. Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Okay. Whew. Job learned his lesson, right? And, and he, gets, he gets the point. That's it. Thank you, God. I'll... I'll uh, I'll, I'll just shut up now. And so are we done? Oh, no. Then God goes on for another two chapters. More browbeating for Job. He asks him a very poignant question in, in chapter 40, verse 8. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Job, you're, you're trying to justify your own actions at the expense of condemning me. Job, you're going so far as to suggest that you're right and I'm wrong for doing what I do. Are you sure that's a check you want to write, Job? And then finally, in chapter 42, Job repents. 42 verse 3. He's quoting here. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Job repents. And once again, uh, not for a specific sin that brought about all of this. What he's ultimately repents, uh, uh, what he ultimately repents of is this lack of, of trust in, in God Almighty. Okay? Now, here's the thing. The book of Job ends with the Lord rebuking Job's friends. That's how the book ends. How it doesn't end is with God giving a reason for the suffering. He never answers that. He never tells Job, hey, Job, this is what I allowed with all this. Here, here's why you had to go through all this. He never gives him an answer. And as unsatisfying as that is sometimes, that's just the reality we have to grasp. Sometimes God doesn't give us a reason, at least not specifically. We don't get an answer, not within the context of, of the book of Job either. But we do get an answer in the context of redemptive history. This is why I was saying at the start of our time together that if we stop here, we're left very unsatisfied. We're left with questions. Is this, is this how it really ends? Is this it? Is this all we get? This, this book didn't, didn't make any sense. Again, if you only read the book of Job and only got the big highlights, it wouldn't make any sense. Again, if we read all this, we're left with the answer of, or left with the question of, why, why did Job have to go through all that? With a reply from God that says, because I said so. 
Did your parents ever tell you that as a child? Did your parents ever say that? Mom, why can't I do this in a reply? Because I said so. Oh man, I used to hate that answer. Mom, I can be a child of, of reason. You, you, can, you can throw me a bone here. I just want to know why. But now as a parent from time to time, guess what I tell my own kids? Because I said so. You see, now as a parent, I know it's not just that my kids, kids are trying to, to be children of reason. Deep down, I know their motives. They're asking me why, not just for the sake of reason, but because they want to hear a reason deconstructed and then try and convince me otherwise. They want to talk me out of it. And I know this. So my objective is to just shut them down. Kids, sometimes you don't get a reason because I don't answer to you. Sometimes you just need to know what you're told and, and trust me that I have only the best of intentions for you in mind. Okay? And that's, that's what this sounds like we get from, from God to Job, doesn't it? Why do, why do you have to suffer, Job? Because I said so. Just trust me. There's, there's more than meets the eye. And now here's the thing. For some of you, that, that might be reason enough. For some of you, because I said so is all you need to hear. But for some of us, if we're really being honest about it, we crave a little more. We're left unsatisfied. And the good news is the story of Job doesn't end at the ending of the book of Job. There, there's more that happens. The account of Job points us to something bigger. If this were only a story about a guy who suffered just because God could do it, where does that leave us? It leaves us with a cosmic drill sergeant. But if the story of Job exists because it points us to something else, to someone else that would one day come, this is a story that is a shadow picture of what God would do on a bigger scale so that when it happened, we would recognize it. So we would recognize him when it finally played out. We see his fingerprints. We recognize his work. We see his hand in motion. Then it makes a bit more sense. Then it becomes a little bit more satisfying. Do you want to guess who this story points us to? How? Uh, you, probably, you probably already know the answer. This is what we've been doing all, all, uh, all series long. Who does this story point us to? It points us to Christ, of course. And with that, I'm going to unmute us. <laughs> Let me ask this. Whoever wants to jump in and, and try and answer this. How does this account, how does the account of Job point us to Christ? Anyone want to try to, to answer that uh, from the get-go? Eric is Howard Curling. Go ahead, Howard. It, it makes me think about uh, asking why did Jesus have to go through what he went through when he was innocent? Okay. Great, great answer. Howard said, why does Jesus have to go through everything he did when he was innocent? All right. Now we're getting at it. Now we're getting at it. Listen to this. You see, it's, this is remarkable to me. This is utterly remarkable. It's believed that, uh, that, this, that this book, the Bible, is the oldest writing in the Old Testament, okay? So this was a story that God was telling from virtually the very beginning. And what was it telling us? You see, centuries after Job, Satan assaulted, just like Howard was saying, Satan assaulted another innocent sufferer who died while crying out, why God, why, why have you forsaken me? Again, this is Jesus quoting the Psalms, right? Why have you forsaken me? Ultimately, was giving us a, a, a reflection of what happened with Job. 
Job did the very same thing. Why, God? Why, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? He cried out and got no answer. His friends turned on him. Jesus' friends turned on him and, and tried to talk him out of doing the right thing. How many times did Peter say, I'll never have it? I'll never have it, Jesus. See, God has done this before. We recognize this. This account in Job is God telling us what, what he was going to do before he did it. You see that? God was telling us about Jesus, how a righteous man would have to suffer, who, who, who would be subject to the temptations of Satan. That even though the first Adam failed at this task, then comes along, along comes Job, there would be another Adam who wouldn't. Job is Jesus foreshadowed. And it's the oldest book in the Bible. How about that, right? And so, so related to this then is, is why does this book, uh, or, or does this book only tell us about Jesus? Or can we learn something about suffering from it? Why do we suffer? Are, are we ever like Job? Why do we suffer when we can't pin a sin to it? You know, sometimes we find ourselves suffering, even though what, I, I didn't sin to bring this about, did I? I can't perceive anything that I've done to justify the suffering that I'm going through. But you see, listen, when we suffer, it's not to identify with Job. It's not so we can say, hey, we're kind of like Job. It's to identify with the ultimate Job. Jesus Christ, the ultimate innocent sufferer, all right? Jesus Christ suffered not that we would not suffer, but that when we suffer, we could become like him. That's it. That's why we suffer. You have to remember this. The Father has one objective for you. And I know we've talked about this numerous times, and we always keep coming back to this. The Father has one objective for you, and that's to make you more and more a little bit like his, his son each and every day, a little bit more like his son Jesus. He's molding you into his image. You are walking in his footsteps. You are doing the things that he did so that you can become just like him. He suffered, though he was innocent, and the Father desires to make you like him in every way. Second Corinthians, let's, uh, I'll share one more verse with you here. Second Corinthians 3.18 tells us this. We'll then close and uh, open it up for any other questions, if there are any. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That's 2 Corinthians 3.18. And with that, we'll put a pin in our study on uh, Job here. And just understanding again, once again, if you only read the book of Job, if you only read the book of Job, you're going to come away dissatisfied thinking that that doesn't make much sense. But if you hold up the story of Job in the light of the New Testament and see that Job, again, the oldest book in the Old Testament, is foreshadowing something else, an innocent sufferer who would one day cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This only should strengthen your faith and really, and really put something deep down inside you that what I'm reading here what I read in the pages of Job is, is, is amazing. Centuries before Jesus came, we were being told the story of Jesus. And I, I dare say, I, I can't think of any other religion that comes close to foreshadowing like that. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. Any other religion, I, I defy you to find that. It's only in our faith, in our, in our Christian faith, that we get uh, this sort of reassurance uh, given to us in the pages of Scripture. One more time, let's Let's unmute the, uh, the lines here and uh, see what questions or comments or thoughts you may have. All right. All participants are unmuted. Any, any thoughts or questions? Go ahead and speak up. Hey, Lee, Eric. Yes. It's Luke. 
Hey, Luke. Uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. Uh, <laughs> um, well, two things. Like, one, like it's, it is so encouraging and beautiful to look at this compared with Jesus. All of Jesus' promise of like what he's producing in us and our suffering. Um, and Job lived with the fallen creation and was rightfully subject to it. Jesus volunteered for it. That's right. God said, you may not have his life. Jesus said, I give my life. Um, it's, it's so much better with him, but I do, I, I do, I think it's good to see too, where, I mean, Moses had in the Exodus and Joseph had this in his imprisonment. Um, that there is, um, there is a hope in it and, and, you know, we're really good in our society of, well, we're getting better of like, well, let's listen to the person who actually suffered and hear what they have to say. Uh, we do have a, a Holy Spirit, biblically inspired testimony from Job himself personally experienced it, that to know God is to be satisfied and yeah. to draw close to God in your suffering is to be so satisfied that your suffering is redefined. That's right. Uh, and I, I mean, like, I don't think we should uh, miss out on that. that. That the one who suffered himself says to have been drawn close to God in this is transforming and hopeful. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that, Luke. Someone else? Anyone else have something, a comment or observation or question? If not, let me do this. Uh, I'm going to mute everyone one more time, just give a closing uh, thought. And that is, uh, again, I don't know how long we'll be, uh, we'll be doing this, but as of this moment, it looks like we have 61 participants uh, logged on here right now. And uh, that is uh, encouraging to me personally, but also uh, it just does something uh, in, in, my, in my, my soul that stirs it that I, I can't even describe to you because, again, it's this thought of uh, we're being asked by our civil authorities to, to stay apart, yet we still come together. We find a way to come together. And I dare say, I don't know of many groups uh, that are doing this by their own free will, meaning uh, I know a lot of us have to do this because we're, we're paid by our jobs to come together and meet by Zoom, but you all are here voluntarily uh, because you long to gather with the body of Christ. And it makes me think of the, the passage that, that uh, even the rocks will cry out. Uh, this is, <laughs> no matter how we're, 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 we're attempted, I mean, no one's attempting to silence us here, I, I don't believe, but uh, except for, for the effects of sin itself. Uh, we're, we're suffering through this, uh, this, uh, this, this pandemic uh, where we're being held apart, but yet we're not apart. And uh, there's something really encouraging uh, about that uh, to me personally. And so, again, I want to thank you for, for participating in this. And we'll plan to do it again uh, next week. Not sure who we'll look at next week, but we'll, we'll keep going. And we'll, we'll, uh, we'll take this one week at a time. Uh, so, once again, thank you all for joining me and uh, for joining one another. So, uh, let me close in prayer. And then that gives you about 20 minutes to log out of this and log back in for the live stream. And I hope once again that you all will participate in the live stream uh, uh, church service um, together, like right now, uh, together. And as you go through the, uh, the liturgy on the screen, and as you participate and as you say those things out loud, that you know that you're not doing this alone, that there's someone else all the way across town that is participating with it at the same time as you are. 
This is the body of Christ, and there's nothing else like it. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you uh, for what this, uh, this gathering is. I thank you for what it means, and I thank you for what it shows us that we are held together not by a, a structure. We are held together not by a, a building or activities or, or schedules, but we're held together by the Holy Spirit and held together by Christ himself. So, Father, as we continue to do this for uh, I don't know how long, allow us to be encouraged by that, that you are sovereign. You are the sovereign of the universe, and you're using even this uh, to shape us and to mold us and to make us more like your son. Help us to be aware of that in everything that we do and everything that we say uh, as we go about our activities this week. Thank you for your son. Thank you for Jesus Christ. And it's in his holy name I pray. Amen. All right, folks. Uh, thanks again. Y'all have a great week, and, and we'll see you in worship in just a bit. Signing off.